a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. If you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, our young disciples, I'd love for you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about before and after pictures, a story about before and after pictures. Second, be listening for how you would define the word flesh. How would you define the word flesh? And third, be listening for a story about an Olympic snowboarder, an Olympic snowboarder. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series this morning, looking at the eighth chapter of Romans. And this series is going to take us through the month of May. And it's the perfect chapter in many ways to consider during this season of Easter because it lays out for us the rich implications of the resurrection of Jesus in the life of the believer. Romans 8 describes the benefits that we receive from the work of Christ in extraordinary detail. In this chapter, we're reminded that the resurrection has very practical implications for our everyday life as followers of Jesus. We're reminded that the effects of Christ's resurrection continue to endure throughout the lifetime of a believer. At the end of his series in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis ends his final book entitled The Last Battle with these words. He says, As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. Well, in his work, Lewis is really trying to get his readers to understand that because of Aslan's work, who is a Christ figure in the book, the story that they're a part of has completely changed. They're now in a part of a story characterized by renewal and restoration, characterized by resurrection, a story that continues to get better with time, a story about hope. And I wonder this morning, do you believe that that's the kind of narrative we're living in as followers of Christ? I mean, it's sometimes hard to believe that, isn't it? I mean, I feel that tension. After all, we still lament. We still experience loss and disappointment. We still get discouraged in life. We still get sick. We still feel the sting of sin and death. Yet the scriptures, they paint a story where God is working all things out for the ultimate good of those that he loves. A narrative that leads to an eternity of joy and peace and love and health and life, in which every chapter is better than the one before. But we're a group of people who believe that God is at work in our lives in this world, and that God is truly making all things right now. He's making all things right as we speak. Yet this belief, it requires a significant degree of faith, doesn't it? It requires hope. It requires trust that God's promises are going to come to pass. 
We believe that God is truly at work even now in our lives in this world and that he'll one day fully manifest the work of his resurrection in this world. He's truly at work now. He'll one day fully complete the work that he started. The problem is that we want God's full and final work, though, to be evident now. That's the rub we feel, I think. Which is why it's worthwhile remembering that while we live post-resurrection, we live after the resurrection of Christ, we also live pre-new heavens and pre-new earth. We live in this tension between what God has already done for us in Christ and what God has not yet completed in his work of restoration. In other words, we don't yet live in a world where God has fully and finally made all things new. But that does not mean that we can't experience God's renewing work in true and significant ways even now. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can experience his renewing work. And a crucial question our passage helps us answer this morning is, how can we walk faithfully in this tension between the already and the not yet? What Christ has already started and what he has not yet completed. How can we as followers of Jesus Walk in that tension. I want you to keep that question in mind as we read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. What's next? What's next? It's a question we've all asked at one point in our life or another. All of us have reached milestones in our life where once we get there, we kind of look around and ask, what now? I mean, maybe for you, the milestone is a relationship. Think about that. After years of dating and engagement, you get married and you kind of wonder, what's next? Maybe you worked hard to graduate and you got the job that you were hoping for and everything's going according to plan. But as you get settled into your new rhythm of life, you begin to wonder, now what? Maybe you've had your first child after lots of dreaming and preparation. A healthy baby finally arrives and you wonder, okay, now what? Maybe it's your church that has worked hard to become its own self-sustaining, self-governing community, and you finally realize that goal together, and you look around and wonder, okay, what's next? That's not unlike what we're left asking after reading the first four verses of Romans chapter 8 that we considered last week. 
We read about how Jesus took on flesh, how He came to obey the law, God's commandments perfectly on our behalf, how Jesus came to take the punishment that sin deserved on the cross to satisfy God's justice and to absorb God's wrath against sin. In short, Jesus came to rescue us. He came to do what we couldn't do because we were dead in our sin. That's verses 1 through 4. We read about how if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation for us. We've been fully forgiven, fully accepted. And it would not be strange or unusual for us to hear that good news and then begin to ask the question, what now? What's next? Well, it's a great question, and it's one that our theology of justification and sanctification helps us to answer. And I wonder if you've ever heard those technical theological words before, justification, sanctification. If you haven't, Justification is a one-time act of God's grace where he pardons all of our sin. He accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us and received by faith. You might think of justification as the beginning of the Christian journey. And once you've been justified in God's sight, once you've been accepted by him, we might wonder, now what? What's next? Well, that's where the doctrine of sanctification is helpful. Sanctification is an ongoing work of God's free grace where he renews us in the whole man after the image of God, enabling us to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Technical definition, right? In other words, sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's the process of becoming holy. It describes how we experience change in the Christian life, change. Now, when you think about the word change, I wonder what comes to mind. We love a good story of someone making a change for the better, don't we? I think about how much I enjoy seeing before and after pictures of someone who decides to make a change. I saw one this past week of a golfer I know who got mixed up with drugs and he's recently gotten clean. And he posted a picture of himself six months ago and a picture of himself this week and the change just in his face is significant. You think of those folks who take a picture Uh, uh, every year of their children as they're growing up. And then when their child is older, they put those pictures in a montage video where you can see the growth and the change that's happened over many years in one sitting. It's pretty neat. We also experience change from time to time when it comes to restaurants or businesses that we visit. Have you ever seen the sign in front of a restaurant or a store that says, Under New Management? Under new management, it's a way for that place to communicate that things have changed. There was something wrong that necessitated a change, and you should expect a different experience if you decide to visit our establishment again. Well, that is not a bad image to have in mind when you read Paul's words in verses 5 through 11 of Romans 8. He is seeking to answer the question we all have to one degree or another, the question of, now what? How do I change? Now that I've been rescued and set free by Christ, what happens next? And Paul answers that question by reminding the church in Rome and all of us that the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. And along with the Spirit comes the power to walk in newness of life, the power to pursue holiness, the power to experience change as we grow more into the image of Jesus. And if you had to paint a big idea on this message this morning, that would be it. You have got power in your heart to follow Jesus. 
You have got the power to accomplish that task. You've got the power to walk in newness of life. Paul wants us to see that the Spirit has taken up a residence in our hearts. The power of sin and death is no longer at work in our hearts. It's no longer the controlling influence. Instead, we now have the influence of the Spirit of life at work in our hearts. That's the controlling influence that we experience. The resurrection power of God now dwells in our souls. And we don't often think about this. We don't often appropriate the power that we have. In other words, we're now under new management. We now live according to that new power. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? We, we hear what Paul is saying about a new power indwelling our souls, but we look at our lives and we've got to confess that we so often feel powerless against sin and temptation, don't we? I mean, we, we wonder if growth is ever going to happen. We get discouraged, we get frustrated, we get beaten down by sin and its effects. And we can think of our besetting sins, our proclivity to anger or greed or envy, our fears, our insecurities. When we think about the future, think about your biting tongues, the gossip that often destroys relationship, wandering eyes and the way lust saps our spiritual strength. We think of our apathy towards those who are sad and depressed and worn down. We just don't really care about them much. Think about the way that we're constantly comparing ourselves and our morality to other people so that we might feel better about who we are. Needless to say, it does not always feel like we've got resurrection power at work in our hearts. It doesn't always feel like the spirit of life indwells my soul. And that's why we need Paul's reminder this morning from Romans chapter 8 of what is objectively true about who you are, even though we don't always subjectively feel the impact of that truth. This is who Paul says you are. And you you need to believe it this morning. Paul wants us to understand that if we're in Christ, according to verse 9, we're not in the flesh, but we're in the Spirit, because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, this language of flesh and spirit, it can be a bit strange unless we understand the point that Paul's trying to make and what he means when he uses those words. When Paul uses the word flesh, he is not referring to our physical bodies. Instead, he's referring to our sinful nature. He's referring to our sinful nature. The flesh is a word that Paul uses throughout his letters to refer to who we were naturally without Christ. The flesh refers to our old self that was inclined to sin and disobedience. The flesh is who we are in Adam, our original parent who sinned and passed on his sinful nature to all of his offspring. And when Paul uses the word spirit, he isn't primarily talking about the spiritual, non-physical aspects of life. He is talking about that, but not primarily. Once again, he's talking about a nature. God is one who comes and he changes our very natures. And by so doing, he changes our desires, what we long for, what we want. The Spirit is our new self. The Spirit is who we are in Jesus, our new representative who leads us into life. So the flesh and the Spirit are the ways that Paul describes two different natures. Without Jesus, we're controlled by the flesh and its sinful desires. The flesh is a nature characterized by sin and death. But with Jesus, as we've been given new hearts by God's grace, we're now controlled by the Spirit, which is a nature characterized, according to Paul, by life and peace. Are you following along so far with this theology lesson? We are in a letter of Paul after all, right? 
The bottom line is that we're either tied to Adam in sin or we're tied to Christ in new life. We're either controlled by the flesh or we're controlled by the spirit. Those are the only two options. And Paul wants us to understand that if we're in Christ, then we have his spirit living inside of us. He is reminding us what kind of power we have inside to pursue goodness and beauty and truth in our lives. He's reminding us what kind of resources that we have at our disposal as we seek to walk in God's ways. According to verse 11, we have resurrection power dwelling in us. Resurrection power. What Paul wants us to understand is that not only has the penalty of sin been paid for, that's verses 1 through 4, We're no longer under condemnation, but it gets better. It doesn't end at verse 4. Paul also wants us to see that if we have the Spirit, then the power of sin has been broken in our lives. It no longer controls us. We live according to a new power, a new influence now. And when I was considering this passage through the week, and the way Paul talks about us being under a new power altogether, I couldn't help but think of the Lord of the Rings and Theoden, the king of Rohan. You might have uh, seen the movie. Uh, That's probably the best depiction of this. Theoden is first introduced, and he's under the power of his evil top advisor, Wormtongue. And Wormtongue had cast some sort of spell on Theoden that made him lethargic and weak and apathetic. And when you first see him in the movie, he really has no energy, and his countenance kind of looks sickly. He's blue and pale. He certainly does not look like a king. And his kingdom, in fact, is crumbling all around him. And then enters Gandalf, the good wizard with the fellowship of the ring. And they understand what's happening in the evil spell that Theoden had been subject to. And Gandalf actually uses his power to break the spell. And when he breaks the spell in the movie, you actually see life come back to Theoden's face. He gains his energy, his health returns, his strength is restored. And the image is pretty stark. As he recovers from this spell, he becomes who he was always meant to be, the strong, powerful king of Rohan, defending his people against evil and death. Now, that's not unlike what Paul is trying to get us to picture in verses 5 through 8. Life under the power of the flesh, under the power of sin and death, it looks lethargic and weak and apathetic. But as we're given the spirit of life and peace, as he comes to dwell in our hearts, it should come as no surprise that strength and power and health is restored to us. Do you have the resources to live in the newness of life? I wonder how you'd answer that question this morning. What power are you living under? If you're in Christ, not only has the penalty of sin been removed from your life, but also the power of sin has been broken. You now have the Spirit dwelling in your heart, and He brings resurrection power from which you can draw. God doesn't just stop at our justification. The good news of the gospel doesn't end once you come to know Jesus. No, God continues to work throughout our lives in sanctification. He continues to supply the power of life and resurrection so that we might overcome sin and death in our lives, so that we might walk in newness of life, so that we might resist sin, so that we might grow in the fruit that the Spirit wants to see cultivated and blossom in our lives, the fruit of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. God is at work as we speak, making you into something new 
and he refuses to lose, his victory is as good as accomplished. Some of you might remember the Olympic snowboarder Sean White. In 2010, at the Vancouver Winter Olympics, Sean White dominated the halfpipe event. So much so that he had the gold medal locked up even before his final run. He could have done absolutely nothing in his final run and still won the gold medal. So as he lined up for that final run, the commentators were wondering if he would just cruise down the slope without doing any tricks. After all, the competition was over. He was already the gold medalist, which had to be a strange feeling for him. Well, Sean White used his final run to compete as if he was still going for the gold. In his icing on the cake in 2010 for his last trick, he attempted what they called a double McTwist 1260, which sounds amazing, doesn't it? A double McTwist 1260, which had never been landed in Olympic competition and is arguably the best trick ever accomplished in the history of Olympic snowboarding. And he did it when he already had the gold lined up. Now, he was able to pull off such an amazing feat. How? Why? Well, you could say that he was able to do it because he had already had the gold, right? Having the gold medal status wrapped up enabled him to perform freely. He was under no pressure. Why did he compete even though he didn't have to? That's another great question. Well, because of his status. He's a gold medal snowboarder, and gold medal snowboarders can't help but perform, right? Now, at the risk of sounding a bit cheesy this morning, but in an effort to help us understand what Paul's communicating a little better, in Christ, we are freely given gold medal status, so to speak. That is justification. And many people think that such a gift would make us licentious, right? I mean, we've been given forgiveness. Why not just go out and engage in sin so that we might receive more? That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6 that Hannah read for us earlier this morning. Why not just go out and and live a licentious life? If we're already forgiven, we can get away with anything. We can cruise down the slope without performing, so to speak. But this status is actually meant to spur us on toward holy living, toward sanctification. We perform not because we might lose our status, but because we're secure in it. Look, when we're sure of who we are, when we know that there is no more condemnation for us, that we've been given the spirit of life and power, we are in a sweet spot. We're free, fully assured of God's love in Christ, and now we can go do something big, so to speak. Not to earn God's favor, but in light of God's favor in the resurrection power that lives inside of you. Friends, according to verse 11, we have resurrection power inside our hearts. So, whatever has you discouraged... Whatever sin you can't seem to lay aside and defeat, whatever hard thing God has called you to in your specific life, Paul wants you to know that you have the resources at your disposal to meet the challenge. And this is not health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not like buck up and go do a good job. This is power that we actually have inside of our hearts. Resurrection power, if we have the spirit of the living God living inside our heart, we are invited to set our minds on the things of the spirit. Because doing so leads to life and peace. And even in the midst of this fallen world, we can have hope. Even as we experience decaying bodies, even as we experience sin and misery and the effects that it still has on our lives in this world, we can have hope because the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of us. 
The Spirit of life dwells in you to remind you who you are, to remind you who you belong to, to continually give you the resources to live faithfully in the fallen in this fallen world and to assure you that you've been redeemed and that there is no condemnation for you. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, for your grace. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you now live inside of our hearts, and we pray that as we continue to engage one another, as we continue to engage friends and neighbors, as we continue to battle against sin and its effects in our lives, that you would give us the power to walk in newness of life, that you would give us the ability to appropriate what we already have so that we might honor you, so that we might live in life and health and freedom and wholeness. And we pray that this would bring you glory and that it would bring us comfort. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.